Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm delighted to be back with another podcast for you with a hint of spring in the air even though it is still only February. But we've three wonderful stories for you today. We quietly declared our campus holy ground and stood barefoot there in the heart of a community that had taunted, threatened, and most often ignored us. When Ukraine was invaded and waves of refugees started to land on our shores, many of us felt an overpowering need to help them. The captain standing and looking like he was about to hit me, he had mistaken me as the port authority. So get ready for a tale of courage, a tale of generosity, and a tale of life on the high seas. Okay, let's get started. And first up is an occasional visitor to 10 by 9. Brian Ammons divides his time between North Carolina and Belfast. We were lucky to have him in August when the theme was once when I was young. Here's Brian. Hi, y'all. If you support lesbian and gay students, wear jeans on Wednesday. We painted it in big block letters on one side of the free expression tunnel, complete with an illustration of a pair of faded Levi's. The tunnel ran under the railroad tracks that bisected the campus, and it was regularly painted to promote events at the school. Blue Jeans Day was an annual event on our campus and on many campuses in the States in the early 1990s. In an era marked by the Seattle grunge scene, blue jeans were standard fare. Most students wore blue jeans every day. So the idea was that on this one day, we'd at least get everyone thinking about the fact that we were there, part of their campus community. Our own limited vision hadn't yet learned to name bi, pan, trans, and otherwise queer folk among us, even though some of us in the group would come to identify as such. It was usually a heartbreaking day. North Carolina State University, known mostly for agriculture and engineering and located squarely in the US South, wasn't exactly a hotbed of progressive thought and community. We spent the days leading up to Blue Jeans Day preparing for the emotional impact of the parade of classmates in khakis and skirts as they went out of their way to make sure not to be identified as supporting us. Those of us who chose to wear jeans braced for the verbal harassment we'd face as we crossed campus. It was a tough day, but we were determined. On March 23rd, 1995, Blue Jeans Day of my senior year, I walked through the tunnel we'd painted a couple of days before and saw in bright letters painted over our mural, if you support killing fags, wear shoes every day. And where my friend Rob had painted, it's a great day to be out, the word out was slashed through and replaced with shot. As I emerged and began to walk across the brickyard, which is exactly what it sounds like, a more than 45,000 square foot bricked over yard in the middle of that campus, I was stopped by friend after friend asking, did you see it? Or what are we gonna do? 
By the time I reached my class in the education building, I started responding, yes, I saw it, I got a plan. So we busied ourselves that afternoon taking photos of the graffiti and printing up flyers that showed the image and read, we all have a right to feel safe on our campus. That was the whole agenda back then. We just wanted to feel safe walking across campus. Threats were commonplace and reporting them rarely resulted in much of a response and often were actually met with sneers from campus administrators themselves. So the next day, at 11.50, just 10 minutes before noon, a handful of us began to circulate silently through the crowd of folks gathered at the food court by the brickyard and hand out the flyers with the images painted just 100 yards away and calling for our deaths. And the social map of that campus, this was the cool kids hangout. It was dominated by fraternity and sorority crowds and not really a place most of us frequented. It was also right by that outdoor seating at that same food court where the brickyard preacher would scream condemnation at most everyone, but with a particularly pointed focus on the queer folk like us. I offered him a flyer. He balled it up and threw it to the ground. We then made our way to the center of the brickyard and removed our shoes. We quietly declared our campus holy ground and stood barefoot there in the heart of a community that had taunted, threatened, and most often ignored us. At first, there were fewer than 10 of us. And while I'd been active in what was then known as the Lesbian and Gay Student Union for a couple of years, I'd avoided being quite so visible, quite so vulnerable. I was an education major and on a scholarship that required I teach in public schools for four years after graduation or pay back some $40,000 in tuition fees. With no protection from homophobic job discrimination, if I have been known to be gay, it was perfectly legal then not to hire me just on those grounds. I told myself I quite literally couldn't afford to be so out that it might jeopardize my employability. So I untied my shoes and stepped into a new way of being, barefoot and unafraid, except that I wasn't unafraid. I was terrified. Threatening messages had been left on my answering machine. I'd been followed home by groups of angry young men and managed to dart and hide in the shadows, holding my breath until they passed. One of our other group leaders found a scarecrow hung in effigy outside his dorm room. Meanwhile, a plague was still ravaging our community while politicians and church folk alike argued that we deserved it. It would have been crazy not to be afraid. I closed my eyes and took the hands of my friends. The most in that small group are not particularly religious. The symbolism of what appeared to be a prayer circle made up of campus queers was not lost on me. I opened my eyes and another 10 had joined. Then more, dozens of students and even a few staff and faculty removed their shoes and joined hands. In the end, there were more than 200 of us. 
unlikely allies, friends we didn't know we had, standing barefoot and silent around us as on the outer edge, edges of the crowd others catcalled and hurled slurs as the brickyard preacher continued to condemn us to hell. We held our ground and our silence. After 10 minutes that felt like 10 hours, I spoke, and I'm not sure what I said, something that was an awkward blend of a thank you and a benediction. It would not be the last time that my voice cracked as I pronounced descending forth. Though I'd been involved in movement work for a while by then, something changed in me that day. I found my voice in the silence. I felt what seemed an undeniable presence of something bigger in the spaces between us. I saw some part of me that was simultaneously pastor and teacher and activist come alive. A quarter century later, I was serving as the chaplain at Warren Wilson College in the North Carolina mountains. The young student who stepped barefoot into that stream of the equality movement that day some 25 years earlier could not have imagined ever being an ordained Baptist minister, legally married, or hearing that the US Supreme Court has stood against employment discrimination. That was a different court than it is now, but still. He could not have imagined that in a couple of decades, his home state of North Carolina would see a fusion movement, a, a movement in which folks addressing poverty and healthcare and racism and creation issues and immigration and education and LGBTQ rights would stand by one another and be led by people of faith, speaking truth to power. He could not imagine that he'd find himself walking across the government, government mall in Raleigh towards inevitable arrest and protest of government attempts to dismantle the progress that we'd made as folks from each chapter of his life, including those undergraduate years at North Carolina State University, called to support him from the crowd. He could not imagine that the time would come when he realized his role in the movement would shift to bus driver for the next generation of student activists, or to stand wearing a clergy collar at the back of the crowd where demonstrators and police counter demonstrators interfaced, just being a visible presence, witnessing and watching. And he certainly could not have imagined that as he was nearing 50, He'd come to spend half of his time living on the edge of Belfast, learning from the peace-building community here and finding his place in parallel movements on the other side of the Atlantic. He was just scared and tired and standing on holy ground, which is to say he was standing because all ground is holy, even when it feels like it's shaking beneath your feet. Thank you very much, Brian. I could listen to that lovely southern lilt all evening. Uh, that sweet accent indeed. Thanks so much, Brian. Always delighted to see and hear you and looking forward to your return in the spring. And if you think you can follow in Brian's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch at 10by9.com 
or contact us through our social media channels. Okay, on to our next story, and it's from a first-timer. Emma Prunty joined us in November at the Black Box when the theme was Small World. Take it away, Emma. My family and I were to travel to Canada in the summer to visit my husband's family. Two days before we fly, I'm running around South County Dublin doing last-minute jobs. One of those jobs is to call into my local chemist to pick up all the prescriptions I need for the trip. I get chatting to the woman behind the counter, as you do, because if you didn't, what would be wrong with you? The woman in the chemist is called Carmel, and when I tell her we're off to Alberta for the summer, her face lights up. Oh, I love it out there, she tells me. I've been to Alberta and BC lots of times over the last 30 years. Have you? I ask. Oh, yeah. My sister lives in BC, she says. She lives in Kelowna. I know it, I tell her. I've been through it a couple of times myself. Then I pause. And then the next thing, I hear myself saying, your sister wouldn't be married to a fella called John, would she? She is. Yeah, John. (laughs) That's his name. And I reply, I think I just met a friend of John's there, I tell her. Derek. I was at Derek's house like an hour ago. I was telling Derek I'm off to Canada and he was telling me how much he loves Kelowna and that his best friend lives there. Oh, sure, I've known Derek for years, says Carmel. (laughs) Big smile on her face. You just met him now? How come you met Derek? And I tell her that I'd gone to visit Derek to hand over to him my family's old piano accordion so he might find a way to pass it on to a Ukrainian musician living somewhere in Ireland. When Ukraine was invaded and waves of refugees started to land on our shores, many of us felt an overpowering need to help them. How would we feel about being washed up in a new country? What might we miss from that country? What What could we do to help them feel a little more like themselves in this exile that they never expected? And something drew my eye to the old family accordion that sat on the floor in its hard case outside my bedroom. That's all it was doing, sitting there, getting bumped into or acting as a receptacle for laundry resting between the hot press and someone's bedroom. Every day we looked at it, but we didn't see it. And sure as heck, no one was playing the poor thing. My parents bought that accordion about 40 years ago when my brother had his try every instrument phase. It lasted even less time than the trumpet and the guitar, and it joined them in the family's attic for years. Fast forward 20 years, and I'm living in Toronto, and I'd just gotten into playing traditional music. The tin whistle wasn't challenging enough for me, so I thought I'd drag the old accordion out of the Dublin attic, bring it back to Toronto. It was a beautiful, shiny, burgundy colour, heavy, with pristine keys and all sorts of buttons and a big bellows. I bought a book of chords... I learned about three of them. I loved the deep, loud sound that came from it. That was about as far as I got. Every couple of years, I'd pull it out, fiddle around, knock out a few simple tunes before gently putting it back with a sigh into its velvet-lined box. I carried it from home to home as we moved and our family grew from Toronto to Eastern Canada, then to Norway, then to Italy, and finally back to Ireland again. Back to where it started off, and arriving long after my mother, who first bought it in Walton's off Parnell Square, she had passed on. For all those years, that beautiful thing I never learned to play has been mine, but I have never really been its. And here we were in 2022, and I couldn't stop thinking about how some Ukrainian, stranded somewhere in Ireland, 
must be sorely missing a beloved instrument left behind in a dash for safety. It's an instrument found in many music traditions, but I was thinking of polkas and expressive Eastern European laments that might be there to be coaxed, coaxed out of it. There's a beautiful book by E. Annie Prue called Accordion Crimes, which tells a variety of immigrant experiences in the US through the tale of a single green accordion as it passes from owner to owner. I've carried my family's accordion through my own immigrant life, an immigrant by choice, not through exile. Now it was time for it to move to new hands, hands that might actually respect it and play it. I think now that this quiet family member that traveled thousands of miles with us was just biding its time, letting us mind it until it could finally meet a proper musician. And this is where Derek comes into the story again. That's the best friend of the sister-in-law of the woman in the chemist shop. <laughs> I found Derek on Facebook, where he helped set up a group called The Gift of Music to Ukrainians in Ireland. They put out a call in the spring for anyone wanting to donate any instruments that were unused and or unloved. The response from the Irish public was overwhelming. And within a few months, they had 600 members, people offering free music lessons, as well as vans to drive up and down the country with cellos, harps, pianos, half-sized violins, and lots of guitars. They've already helped 200 Ukrainian families in Ireland this year. Apparently, Ukrainian children start early and very seriously with their musical training. One 18-year-old boy decided to learn music off YouTube with a donated guitar, and the video he sent back to the group showed an astonishing talent. When I showed up at his house, Derek showed extreme concern that my offering to the group was really voluntary, that didn't the accordion have all this history for us, wouldn't we miss it? To be fair, it did turn out to be a bit difficult to wrench it from the invisible grips of my family. I tried to sneak it out to the car with firm words at the ready. This is my accordion and this is what I want to do with it. But still, I let my younger daughter have one more go. I watched her right hand fingers feel the keys, working out a tune she knows from the piano, asking, how do I squeeze it properly? And did I really have to let it go? I did, I said. After a long chat and assurances, I left it with Derek and took off for Canada. He has kept me updated on its progress. It went off to Donegal, then Dundalk, but neither of those worked out. But now, it might have found its place. It's soon to make its way down to Dingle in Kerry, to an 11-year-old boy who already plays but who has left his instrument back in Ukraine. I don't know this boy. I'll probably never meet him. And the most I can hope for will be a message to hear that he's playing it and he's happy. And I hope to eventually get another message that he has left it behind for someone else in Kerry to use after he returns to his home in Ukraine. That's what he hopes. That he'll go back to his own accordion. That is, please God, still waiting, sitting there for him. I would love to hear him play and feel no regret that I had never learned it. Will he play classical or Cajun? Folk tunes from his part of Ukraine? French cafe style? Hopefully, all of those, plus a whack of decent Kerry slides into the mix. The world is a big place, but when music is there to be played, and the instrument of that music passes from one careful hand to another, the world shrinks down to what really matters. For creativity and happiness to come through from the act of performance, and joy to be let free, even, especially, in a time of war and exile.
Oh, what a wonderful story of generosity and connection, Emma. Thanks, and I hope you'll be back with us soon. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but if you want to help with some of our costs, you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. That is, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Podbean, etc., etc. We would be very grateful. But it's more important to us that you sit back, relax, and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story this week, and it's from Norman Mahari. Norman had been a fairly frequent 10 by 9 storyteller, but we hadn't heard from him since 2018, so it was a delight when he submitted a story in January for our fresh start evening. Here's Norman. Be gentle with me, folks. See, some people have brought their knitting. That doesn't look good. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Um, and this start begins on Tarbridge, Baskill, in an August night 50 years ago. I was looking into the Pool of London the Thames flowing gently like liquid licorice, where deep-sea ships were tethered like so many Gullivers to the Keys. Hardly two months before that, I was a schoolboy in bad cess with his da. Now I, w- now I was signed up as a deck apprentice on a tramp ship company, and not a very distinguished one either. In Tantrum in Belfast, I was always a total bollocks. Many teenage boys are. And true for me, leaving school with A-level grades for university to do geography science, but I just couldn't think of squeezing out another geography assignment, never mind sticking three years full-time study. So what was I to do? Go and start a row with my dad, who never wanted me to stay on for A-levels, but to get out and start earning at 16. After all, he had left school at 14, and worked his way up from T-boy to senior management in the shipyard. And it was my dear ma who had talked him around on every occasion. She wanted one of her brood to make it to university. She wanted to have something to say, something wonderful like, he's up at Queen's, don't you know? <laughs> this was a time when a minority made it through to third-level ed as full-time students. Saying that, I wanted to go to the Gale Tack to read poetry and work my keep on the land as a peasant didn't capture my father's imagination. <laughs> what in hell's name were all those bloody O-levels and A-levels about if all you ever wanted to do was be a labourer? Talking about finding oneself and so on was not suitable for this point. He bawled me out and I had no answer that he would understand. So I went into town to get drunk and recover my sense of self. A friend whose father was chief engineer in a cargo ship accompanied me, and he had, by our fifth pint, convinced me that running off to sea was the best solution. (laughs) He guided me unsteadily to Tomb Street, where the Seaman's Pool was, the signing-on bureau. With hardly much thought, I picked Bankline, the last true tramping company in the British Marine, with over 50 ships scattered all over the world. Tramp ships, which are now with the dinosaurs, were unlike regular cargo liners. They left home waters to tramp the world, picking up cargoes here, there and everywhere, and could be away for two years. Bankline ships were notorious 
for entering waters that didn't have any sea charts, and visiting places that maybe saw one ship a year, and even desert islands. All proper Joe Conrad stuff, this was for me. Now, weeks after my drunken sojourn, here I was in London, first city of the empire, my gear stashed at Siemens Mission, Commercial Road. A message at reception said my ship was the large bank Key 13, uh, Pool of London, and directed me to take the, the assigned taxi next day. That last night, on an evening stroll out of London's East End, I was on the verge of the unknown, up on Tar Bridge, and in ignorance that the third ship beneath my gaze would be mine tomorrow. The traffic behind me was pulsing in roars, and I ached like I was in love for the first time. Joy and fear, the two-stroke engine of my heart. Next day, I was delivered between two graceful cranes lowering cargo onto a merchant ship with black sides, white superstructure, and a titanic funnel. It bristled with Derricks and Samson posts, interestingly complex. This'll do, I thought. I clattered the companion ladder to the main deck and was met by what I would learn was the senior apprentice, a brawny South African in dungarees. You better get up and sign on with the old man, he said in his clipped accent. I was in my civvies in a brand new suit, shirt and tied and nice shiny brogues. This was as good as I ever had been. And I had been schooled on that very last night in Belfast by my father and how to present on just such an occasion, to take that step, take that initiative step forward with a firm handshake and announce in a clear voice your, your full title. I located the captain's cabin port side two decks up, though through his open door, I saw what looked like Captain Menwaring of Dad's army, but in a white shirt with epaulets talking across his desk to whom would turn out to be the company's supercargo chap. They were quaffing spirits from a bottle stood between them. Without hesitation, I stepped in and went into my routine, as tutored. At least I shook the right hand and barked out, possibly too bossily, my title and my line. The captain smiled, pushed across the desk some very large papers with a rather nice fountain pen rocking upon it. There you are, sign away, sir, he said to me, smiling. I spotted signatures listed and one space that must be for me. So I did with my still schoolboy hand and straightened and waited. That pause undid my deception. If I'd looked harder at what was before me, I would have seen port clearance declaration clearly emblazoned on these papers. Who are you again, said the captain. <laughs> I retold him, adding, you're a new apprentice here to sign on. The supercargo bloke roared in enjoyment and poured himself a big helping. The captain standing and looking like he was about to hit me, he had mistaken me as the port authority, arrived to clear the ship for sea. Hardly my fault, but worse was to come. The remainder of the day, in dungarees, I worked cargo with the other two apprentices and the crew and sealed the hatches and the dock cranes turned aside and rested and we were free to go ashore. 
And we did, and we drank, and we ate curries from a hole in the wall. And I returned before midnight, full as the Lord. I had just got into the top bunk, from which I then threw up onto the bunk below. Luckily, that was the bunk of the young, young junior apprentice, 16, and innocent from the Hebrides, and not the burly senior, the South African. I reckoned there had been something disagreeable in that curry, rather than it was the, all those pints of Guinness. And after clearing up the mess and finally settling down to a deep sleep, the cabin light suddenly blazed, and a voice was shouting, All right, stand by, 30 minutes. Here, Paddy, you're on the bridge, stand by. Paddy turned out to be me. <laughs> I was to be in uniform, and it was 3 a.m. in the morning, and my head was split with a hatchet, and my mouth was like an armpit. <laughs> so in the dark of the enclosed bridge, I went where the quartermaster stood at the helm, and the old man, the captain, gazed down upon the forecastle where the seamen were winding in the dropped lines, and bar he barked into an intercom, let go forward. A doughty little tugboat was puffing away to starboard, dragging us clear. Another uniformed figure, who murmured only to the captain, turned out to be the river pilot. He sat in a type of high chair, gazing straight ahead into the dark. The third officer behind a dark curtain in a lighted room off pulled me in and quickly explained my duties as bridge apprentice. Stand by the telegraph, ring down on the orders to the engine room, enter those orders with the time in the 24-hour clock in the log there, spot the various blinking lights ahead and mark them with 24-hour time on the chart in pencil provided as they come abreast, thus positioning the ship in her progress down the winding Thames. All this responsibility was the for me, an inexperienced and still drunk teenager. <laughs> anyway, within an hour, I was beginning to get the hang of it, of all these occulting lights, and the ship was steering 090 or some variation. Yes, I was also to keep an eye on the compass in its little green-lighted binnacle and enter that into the log as our course changed, and I really began to feel important. Then the old man asked, rather casually, How's your head, apprentice? I replied, Ach, not so bad, sir. Whereupon he exploded. I mean, how is the ship steering? <laughs> I heard the chuckling of the pilot and the sniggering from the chart room. And I think even the Indian steersmen enjoyed it too. So began my sea career, and it was to last only a year. A time of endlessly getting into trouble, being logged for breaches of regulations, docked pay, and finally DR'd, which is fatal to seamen, which means decline to report, in my seaman's record book upon signing off. So I went home to university. Thanks very much. Welcome back, Norman. Glad you gave up life on the sea and made it to the land and to the 10 by 9 mic. Let's not leave it so long next time. And that is it for this podcast. 10 by 9 live events are up and running for 2023. 
Check out all our dates on our website, that's 10by9.com, or keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app, and tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen, Margaret McClory, the gorgeous people of the Black Box, our wonderful audience, and all our storytellers. But especially Brian Ammons, Emma Pronte, and Norman Mahari. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.